Hello and welcome to the Global Careers Calls podcast from the University of London Career Service. Your chance to listen to stimulating career conversations between a member of our team and professionals working in a range of sectors based across the globe. So let's listen into our Global Careers Call. In this episode, we are really excited to introduce you to Addie Walker, Director of POD International Consulting, who has a vast experience within the international development and humanitarian aid sectors. Addie will share with you his professional insights and experiences of working in a diverse range of challenging settings. He will also share with you some valuable tips and resources to enter this exciting sector. As usual, Laura Brammer, Deputy Head of University of London Career Service, will be your host for today's episode, and we hope you enjoy the podcast. Hi, Addy. Great to speak to you today. It's a great opportunity to, for us to learn from Addy's breadth of experience uh, within the international development sector. And I'd like to start, Addy, if it's okay, with a question about when you were studying with us at the University of London, would you have described yourself as a career starter, someone relatively at the start of their career development journey, a career developer, someone with a bit more experience looking to sort of progress, or even a career changer, someone looking to move into a completely different sector? Thanks for the question. Thanks for being invited. Um, and it's nice to be in podcast representing Pod International. Wonderful. Um, yeah, I did my master's in 2005, by which time I'd already been working in this sector for five years. But I only had uh, qualifications of an electronics diploma at that time, not particularly relevant. So I would probably sit myself somewhere in the career developer space um, as I'd already started work, but but I had a wrong set of academic background. So this was the reason for taking the studies. Great. Yeah. And what was your study that you studied with at the University of London? Um, I did my master's on, well, I did my thesis or dissertation, it's called, sorry. Yeah. Um, disengagement strategies of international organizations in Sri Lanka. I was working in Sri Lanka at that time um, and looking at a lot of organizations perpetuating their existence when targets had been met and somehow seeking more funding to keep going. And I was questioning this, thinking, surely we should build local capacities and go home. That was the logic behind also my, my dissertation and my work. Right. Did you enjoy your studies just out of interest? Yeah, I did. I um, had a lot of flexibility. It was actually a bit of a hybrid between... Imperial College and so on. Um, and I found myself a bit stuck in the box of the curricula proposed. So I wrote to both deans and they said, I said, look, if you want me just to be a statistic cuss out number, then I'll expect a no to my request. If you're interested in me taking what I learn and applying it and taking what I work in and bringing it back to my studies, please give me access to the full curricula of both universities, which they agreed to. So I tailor made my master's. There's a little message for folks out there. Um, if you don't ask, the answer's no. Absolutely. Great example of kind of what we might describe now as sort of entrepreneurial, entrepreneurial thinking as well, just sort of, you know, something like, like that. Trying to pitch something that isn't there. Fantastic. Okay. So often when we're talking to our students, we talk about the need to be, you know, reasonably brave in their career development. And just as you did there, really, I mean, that's a great example of where you kind of saw an opportunity and, and took a step out of your comfort zone to make something happen. 
So I wonder if you could tell us a bit more, Addy, about where you feel you've had to use you know, courage in your career development, not not literal physical courage, although, you know, you may well have worked in in some tricky places, uh, but in other forms of courage where you feel that you've applied that and it's been a success for you. Okay, well, yeah. So the international, so-called international development or international humanitarian space is in itself a tricky and often a dangerous one. And um, I would say it takes quite a bit of courage just to get on the plane in the first place to go to some of these places, I mean, I knew nothing about Pakistan before I went to Pakistan, other than what everybody tells you and what the media tells you, which it paints quite a scary picture. The same was going to Congo, kind of dark Africa, so-called, um, with its challenges and so on and so forth. And the same, I went to Sri Lanka in the middle of conflict. I went to Haiti just after the earthquake. And I would say it already, as I say, takes some courage to step on the plane. Um, of course, there's immediate rewards of working in those kind of environments. Other aspects of courage, uh, challenging the status quo. Sometimes you've got a lot of structure, rules and regulations in place. And if you just accept them, sometimes they're not the best fit for purpose. And I would, I would say that there's been occasions where I've challenged with some courage existing protocols, practices, the use of certain types of instruments. I'll give you one example. Right. Some organizations love to use something called a log frame. Mm -hmm. I don't know if you're familiar with this. It's a very kind of linear. If you have these inputs, you do those activities with them, you get these outputs and the results are this. But that works for Germany and Denmark, you know, maybe Japan, but it certainly doesn't work for the kind of context that I've been working in where you need a lot more flexibility. And thus, and thus you have to challenge some of these norms, so-called institutional or organizational norms, and you're up against the big donors who are requesting you to report against those kind of systems. And that takes a bit of courage too. And is that something you feel you've, you've learned to do more easily as you, your career has been going on? Or was that something that always felt quite natural to you even at the start of your career? No, it's, it's certainly something that's de e evolved. Um, and as you, as you gain the wheels from making those courageous steps, you develop confidence in, in that ability to, to make yeah. those kind of, take those kind of steps, those kind of initiatives. Um, and when you see the wins from having a more adaptable model to work with, then, then it gives you an extra boost to ask those questions the next time around without question. Absolutely. Okay, thanks. Pleasure. So we know as well, obviously, many of our students who are studying with at the University of London, they've chosen their course to, to enhance their career development and sometimes to actually change their job or maybe get their first job or their first more senior job. So if people were to say, you know, how do most people within the international development sector find jobs, what would you say? Um, well, finding jobs before you come into the sector, there's a variety of different ways of doing this. Obviously, most of the type of organization working in the sector, have their own websites where they announce their, their vacancies and so on and so forth. But there are other platforms like DevEx, Development Aid, ReliefWeb, and so on and so forth. There's a plethora of these that also advertise those kind of jobs. The big one at the moment, of course, LinkedIn. People are familiar with this. I would call it more of a professional media or social uh, network than a, than a kind of a social one. Um, lots of job adverts going on in there. In-house organizations own spaces and workplaces. 
Um, but I, I think the, the big issue is that you must be aware that, of course, organizations have a ten tendency to promote within, if possible, um, rather than recruit externally for, for a variety of reasons. So sometimes they're going out of the box and looking for something new. So they want people from the outside to bring in new perspectives, fresh blood and so on and so forth. But there's a lot of kind of in-house thinking. Um, I, I don't know if you're familiar with the kind of iceberg thing where you see a tiny little space at the top and that's the job advert. But in reality, what's going underneath is, is, is how recruitment is taking place. Um, word of mouth connections, keeping your ears open, um, boundary scanning, not closing doors and being aware of coffee machine recruitment. You know, if you go and visit people, knock on doors, there's a whole variety of ways of and access to, um, to positions that you, that you might want be, might be interested in taking out. Of course, if you're a starter, um, you've got to show something extra. You know, and, and there are spaces for volunteers as, as an, as a, an internships and so on and so forth, um, at the, at the outset of a career. Certainly. Okay. So that's a really good point of what you were saying about the first step might be more in a sort of volunteering capacity, for example, and, and getting internships. Sure. And, and is there a particular part of the sector that feels more open to that kind of internship or volunteering opportunity, or is it across the whole patch, would you say? Well, the sector is now such a plethora and mishmash of different types of organizations, Rory. You've got the kind of the hardcore emergency end of this, the very humanitarian, altruistic almost um, vector, um, where there's more openness and willingness to have volunteers engage. <laughs> that a little bit competes with the dynamic in, in relation to trying to make the sector more professional, of course, and that excludes people like volunteers who maybe don't have a set of baggage and experience and qualifications that they bring to the to play. Um, at the other end of the scale, you've got private sector organizations who 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 really have those kind of spaces. And in the middle, somewhere development organizations that may also open up kind of opportunities for internships. I know several that are doing this now. Um, and UN, for example, has a whole volunteer program, kind of the UNV program. Um, and volunteering then is not actually volunteering anymore. You paid a reasonable stipend and have some contributions to your living costs and so on and so forth. So there's a, there's a variety of different opportunities, but again, it's coming down to individual types of organizations and, and the work that you want to do. Um, of course, if you're going in really at the beginning with not too much of the relevant qualifications, you've got to be willing to be adaptable, bit of this and a bit of that. And can you get that? And can you do this? Um, and less specialists, of course. Okay. So more sort of generalist in what you can offer in terms yeah. of range of skills. And it's a message I would also give that one needs to be careful when getting into the sector that you don't start to put yourself in a box because ultimately your CV is going to be representing you often as a sure school. And if you've only done one kind of work, you're only going to be finding those kind of opportunities further down the line. And that might be more challenging if you're interested in a kind of a career shift later on in life. My initial first 10 years in this were all post-disaster. And then I had to kind of stretch and push to not get stuck in that box when applying for other jobs as well. So it's a, it's a thought for young folks thinking about moving into the sector. 
Yeah, that's really valuable to hear that. So how how did you squeeze that box? Did you just kind of get involved in a wider range of projects when you got the opportunity? Yeah, and it happened within the same organization that I was working with at the time. So, and in the same country, I shifted from a post-flood kind of response project to something working with local government, which of course is a longer term process and more about policy and reforms and dialogue and so on and so forth. And that was... That was again, I mean, you've got to put, you've got to push the boundaries. You've got to push the boundaries. You've got to have some ideas about where you want to go as well. Yeah. It's great to hear a specific example of someone doing that. Cause we hear, you know, this idea of offer a wider range of skills, but to hear an illustration, just like that is fantastic. Great. How you mentioned a little bit, Addy, about how diverse this sector is and the different stakeholders and different agendas and different size of organizations and size of budgets, et cetera. Sure, sure. How would you say, uh, are there any kind of themes or trends you can identify about how the sector's changing, how it's becoming, you know, the sort if you want to be future facing for that sector, what kind of things do you need to be prepared for? Okay, well, obviously the big one. <laughs> The one at the moment, excluding COVID, <laughs> is is is, uh, is climate. The focus on climate, the focus on green energy, the focus on environment, natural resource management, and so on and so forth. So the, the, that's the big focus at the moment. But in terms of change, it's a little bit about the locus of where some of these engagements are taking place, because obviously many of those kind of thematic aspects don't necessarily take place in poorer countries or in lesser developed countries. They're kind of a global phenomena. So that's already one shift in this sector that you find a lot more work in also developed countries. This is one major thing. The other thing, of course, with mass migration, with refugees and that kind of thing, is that a lot of the work with those target groups is also taking place not in their home countries. You know, look at the Syrian thing at the moment, most of, or much of the work around Syria is taking place in Turkey, because you've got a whole myriad of refugees and asylum seekers in Turkey. So you're looking at how they work and live and engage and interact and integrate with host societies as well. So that kind of thing. Um, you've got to shift a little bit in, in kind of the design of projects and programs themselves. The EU has just come up with a really good instrument called a facility, which is a much more kind of demand-driven response mechanism. It's often a very technical thing. It's not kind of loads of hardware. It's much more advisory services and capacity development. But it's a really good little initiative because it's much more tailored to work in an environment which can change quite a regular. And this is a reasonably new phenomenon, um, moving away from the kind of very pre-designed programs and projects and hoping that we'll be able to roll them out even if things around us are going haywire. So this is another thing. Um, obviously, there are big global objectives like this, the Sustainable Development Goals that we're all gradually working towards. But the way that we get there is very different for different types of organizations. And, and, and most organizations are looking around, they're doing what I call boundary scanning, seeing what other organizations are doing to try to find the best approaches and, and keep up to speed if you use future, future focus or future facing, this kind of terminology to make sure that 
and we're trying to stay at the cutting edge of what we're doing. And, and despite it being humanitarian and developmental, it, it's still competitive as an industry. I have to be very clear about that, you know, um, um, there's a lot more tenders being put out for that kind of thing. And then it's a win. If you win, you're in kind of thing. So, um, there's, there's several changes. I mean, it comes back to the point that you really need to be versatile and adaptable to, to be able to stay in the game, if you like. Um, the, the example with COVID is of course the home, uh, home working, remote management, having to learn new ICT skills and so on and so forth, even new different platforms and tools that you have to use to have engagements with folks. So the, I wouldn't say it's a sudden shift. It's a gradual shift. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's something that's continuous. New initiatives come up, come up from the headquarters of different organizations that in the field you have to adapt to, and then see how you fit that with your reality on the ground. So these are some examples of this kind of yeah. change that you talked about. Yeah. That, and there, it's really useful to get that perspective. And I thought also what you were saying there about although it's an international development kind of setting, you know, sometimes we get asked by students, are there opportunities in developed nations as well to work within international development? And it sounds from what you're saying that absolutely that's the case and that, that might be something that's kind of growing as well. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely the case. A lot of headquarters now take on a more global remit and they say, okay, what well, we can also offer are training programs and workshops and conferences and seminars in our own country. They might not be in the headquarters. I'll give you an example of an organization I worked with for many years, 12 years with GIZ. It's a German government owned company. They previously, when I started working with them back in, oh my goodness, 2000, they only had their headquarters and then projects and programs in country. Now they have several other offices in their own country in Germany where they do different thematic things, do some training, do, for example, uh, cultural programs and things like this in an, in an enabling way to prepare people to go to the field or to take on activities in the country of Germany as well. So that's just one example. Yeah. Mm, that's great. And I suppose linked to that, um, it, and it's, it's kind of made me think of it by based on your question there, are there apart from looking at individual organizations websites looking at some of the vacancy sites you talked about as well you know sometimes in different sectors people say oh well you know this is sort of trade press this is a thing that everyone reads this is the sort of go to to uh, source of, of of information is that true for international development are there certain things that people across the industry tend to sort of refer to or, or is it just too diverse for that and is it just depending on your sort of specialism yeah i i i would I would hesitate to say it's too diverse, but I think I've highlighted probably the four main kind of platforms or locations for this. And as a LinkedIn, Development Aid, DevX, and Relief Web. Relief, obviously, in the title, it's telling you it's kind of the more emergency stuff. LinkedIn covers everything and also repeats what some of those others are also putting out there. Um, yeah, I would see these as the four big spaces for finding out about job opportunities, but definitely don't go into that with a limited focus and say, right, I'll find something in those four. You've got to, you've got to keep looking in a very broad way. And beyond job opportunities, just for keeping sort of up to date with what's happening in the sector, are there any sort of publications that focus on that or is it just think you know articles you'll find in other kind of mainstream media outlets 
Um, Harvard do a really good set of, of documents and, and kind of white papers and other, other versions and other publications that are really interesting for people in the sector. Right. But I would also say just aside from reading, um, if you go onto any of those platforms, you'll find a lot of information about conferences and seminars and online events that you can participate in. Um, and when I say participate, I really mean engage with them. I mean, don't just go and listen, ask questions, probe, put out, uh, put out opinions. That's also a way of getting noticed. And it's also a way of making contacts and those contacts may well then become future employers at a later stage. Okay. So it's not, it's, it's bigger than just reading. It's yeah. certainly about engaging mm. actually. Yeah. And, and demonstrating the sort of person they want to hire someone who's going to yeah, make it. Certainly. Absolutely. Brilliant. So, um, I'm going to ask you to go back a few steps now, maybe a, a lot of steps. And I want you to imagine a kind of less experienced version of yourself, who now with the benefit of hindsight, what you know about the diversity of this sector, the way it's changing, the way it, the, the kind of whole structures that are used to evaluate the impact that you're making, et cetera. What advice would you give to a, a younger version of Addy looking to sort of embark on this, uh, it working in this professional route? Um, it, it, it's competitive, as I mentioned already, um, partly because of a kind of a, an excitement that might go with the idea of travel, of living and working in a different country and all the rest of that stuff. Um, so you've got to be able to a little bit stand out from the crowd as you have in any recruitment process. Um, at the same time, you don't want to stand too far away from the crowd because some of the folks that are recruiting are still a little bit, perhaps old school sure. and not so comfortable out of their zone with people who are wild and creative and innovative and so on and so forth. You've got to find that just balance. Um, you need to be able to manage expectations. You need to be able to think about what you actually want and even write it down. I really find that very valuable. What do you expect to get from this? Um, and what can you then also contribute? Because of course, recruiters are looking for what's the value addition that you bring to the organization, to the program, to the sector and so on and so forth. I mentioned before about being careful not to be put in a box. So unless you actually clear and, and set on, I'm going to be a logistician and I'm going to be a logistician for life. Um, be a bit careful about what you get stuck into and, and go with your own agenda as well. I mean, this was advice from my dad who was in the sector many years before me. He said, if you're going to a new country, go with your professional, um, objectives and desires and dreams, but we'll go with some personal ones as well. Okay. If you're going to go to Nepal where I've just come back from plan to do some trekking or some jungle rafting, or I don't know what, you know, yeah. go with something else in mind as well. This is important because that also contributes to yourself the relevant. And this is something fundamentally, if you, if you're showing recruiters, um, that you're someone who is not just learned, but willing to keep learning, this is also really important. Um, it's part of the response process for interviews. If you don't know the answer. Don't just say, I don't know, say you don't know, but I'm willing to learn or I've taken these initiatives to try and I'm trying to develop myself so that, yeah. Yeah. Um, 
I, I, I mentioned my father, myself and my father and my brother write guidebooks and we wrote one particularly appealing one called, I don't think like the title, this is dad's title, so forgive him for this, A Give Hope in Hell, it's getting in and getting on in the international development sector. Okay. I'll, I'll highlight already it's free. We're giving this knowledge away. Brilliant. So far it's had 30,000 downloads. You can get it on Oboco or you can get it on network learning. And this is go take it, enjoy, read uh, and be free and learn something from that because that's our combined family experience. My dad worked for many years, Oxfam, UN, VSO and others in a variety of countries. I've been doing this for the last 20 years in many countries. My brother's currently a director for the Czech NGO People in Need for the whole of Africa. He's also worked for MSF. We've got a combined plethora of ideas and perspectives all in there, which gives you a lot more than a 30 minutes chat that we're having now, Laura. Of course. And, and you know, I really appreciate you giving the selected highlights, but that's great that resource is available. I'm sure we can sort of provide a link to that yeah, as well absolutely. for people to, to find it. Sure. Okay. Um, just last couple of questions. Sure. Um, I mean, I, I, we talk a lot and our students are often really interested about this idea of, of professional networking. And obviously yeah. there are now things like uh, LinkedIn, a sort of professional networking site, which, you know, wasn't available the years before. So it had to be much more face-to-face. Sure. And because of the impact of COVID, understandably, a lot of students saying, well, how, how can I network? You know, I'd, I'd love to do more networking face-to-face networking i know that's you know particularly powerful but you know i'm just not able to do that obviously hopefully that's going to change and become easier over time but you know as someone who has got so much experience and obviously is connected to more people who've got experience as well you know how how would you encourage particularly people at the early stages of their career who maybe haven't got an extensive professional network in place already from a previous sector you know what what are some of the things they can start start with would you say okay and let's, let's, let's talk about LinkedIn because it is, it's, it's a real key platform at the moment. Um, I think really importantly is that everything about you online is, is controllable to an extent, uh, whatever you put out there, whatever email you send, whatever snap, blah, blah, Insta fluff thing you're doing, people see it. Mm. And I think this is really an important thing, especially for young folks. Um, that you need to manage as far as possible what access people have to the information about you and what that inter- information contains. So this means not just putting a profile out somewhere and then ignoring it. It means tweaking it. It means playing with it. It means adapting it. It means adjusting it as you grow and as you evolve because other people are going to start seeing that. And every time you tweak it, other people are going to start seeing that. So making sure that you're, you're up to date all the time. You need to kind of, if I, I'll say nurture your profile online um, so that it's always relevant. It's always giving the right story. It's always giving you a positive uh, kind of presentation externally. This is really important. You have to make connections, but you have to do it with a certain level of sensitivity. You know, if you look, look at LinkedIn, you can get everybody from ambassadors to ministers and all kinds of big shots out there. Um, don't bombard those kind of people with connection requests because you're likely to get rejected. Be realistic, start small with the assistant, this, and the officer that, and then go to the manager, this, and the manager, that, and the, the kind of 
coordinator this and the coordinator that before you get to the country directors. To be realistic, um, sell but not too hard because if you've not got a massive baggage to sell, then people will quickly look at your profile and say, this is not interesting to have this connection. So you've got to do it with a little bit of diplomacy, a little bit of sensitivity. I mentioned some of the other ways of getting yourself out there, and that's by going online, going to these conferences. If you look at Development Aid, there's different platforms in there where you can find all the upcoming events. There's many others. Eldis is another who present what's going on. ODI, um, they also show what's coming out, this conference, that conference. Many of them are free now because they're online at the moment. So this is really an opportunity, mm -hmm. a real window of opportunity for young folks who maybe don't have much of the readies to kind of get access to what's going on, who's talking with the big names and reaching out. And, and another message I would also give is that once you've got doors open, once you've made connections, maintain them, keep those doors open. You never know when you might want to come back there later on. Advice that my cousin gave me, who's in marketing, he said, I, I was being rather selective about the contacts that I was making on LinkedIn. And he said, yes and no, I understand why you're doing that, but what you might be missing in my particular business of consulting are possible future clients. And it might be, might not be specific to those people, but it might be their set of connections. And once you are writing stuff on LinkedIn and your new connection who might not be very relevant for you will automatically see that, their connections will start to see if they do show an interest, they like to comment, they do a like or what have you, and so on and so on. And it, and it right. gradually builds up. It's a kind of a trickle rolling stone yeah. scenarium. Yeah. Yes. Absolutely. Someone was describing it as sort of a, almost like a biosphere, you know, like yeah. it just had, takes on a sort of organic capacity of itself. Which Absolutely. Absolutely. But the really important thing, as I mentioned, is that you must keep in touch with your profile that you have out there. Tweak it. Encourage folks who you've worked with to send you testimonials. A lot of people and now recruiters particularly are looking not just at what the person's telling about themselves, which is the CV and the cover letter, but, you know, references and testimonials. So, so if you've worked for someone and they've had a good experience of that engagement, ask them, please send me a testimonial that I can put on LinkedIn and people can start to see, okay, so other people think this person is good at mm. whatever it is. Mm. Yeah, that power that's of credibility. Yeah, that's credibility. Yeah. Fantastic. So, so many strategies there about how to maximize, you know, that's a good point about although COVID has obviously been a catastrophe in so many ways, it has also disrupted the status quo and provided some opportunities that we just didn't have before, such as getting involved with kind of virtual conferences and stuff like you mentioned. Sure. So, sure. Absolutely. Okay. Last one from me, Eddie, and this is slightly different, I suppose, is one of the things that we're quite keen to explore is the value of sort of transdisciplinary learning and and thinking about how people bring different skills. Dis, you know, they may have studied a wide variety of different courses, but getting to work in kind of transdisciplinary teams to explore different kind of problems and, and issues that we face across the globe. So I wonder from your experience as a professional in your sector, is that something you would endorse? Do you see the value of transdisciplinary working or not? From from three perspectives, let me say, I see it as being highly advantageous. Okay. One is actually coming back to the, if you like, to bits of kind of devil's advocate role that I sometimes play. Um, and, and I find this 
particularly relevant in a sector that tends, not always, but sometimes to chop things into silos. Okay. So here's a wash program, water and sanitation. Here's a health sector program. Here's an education program. Here's a refugee program. Here's a local governance program. Here's a livelihoods program. And it's kind of putting blinkers around people. And what's missing from those approaches, of course, that the plus of them is they're really targeted, focused, really addressing the needs that have been written down about what the target group wants. But sometimes what's missing from those approaches is, as you say, this kind of cross fertilization of ideas and maybe also some spillovers. You know, if you, if you only tackle water and sanitation, so people have got ideas about hygiene and health, then they're ready to go to school, but we haven't done something in education, then there's something missing. Or maybe the watch programs could take place in the schools so that the kids are getting it, not just from home, but also from the teachers. These are very small and simple examples. When I was in Nepal just recently, and when you're working very much on a demand-driven model rather than a pre-planned model, anything can come up. So you've got to be able at that particular time to say, yes, we can provide those kind of services or support or something else. I had, I think at that particular time, about 40 different consultants doing analysis on how COVID impacts the delivery of emergency support. Um, somebody doing some training on public finance management, another set of teams working on monitoring and evaluation, um, some others taking care of disaster risk reduction training. Yeah. Now, if I knew nothing about these kind of things, then I would be in a very difficult spot in terms of assuring the quality of those services provided. And of course, what now that very small example has given you is a very mini network of four different types of engagement, which for me are really valuable as a leader in this sector to be able to pick on and call on at a later stage. And it might even be particularly with stuff related to health and the whole pandemic, of which I'm not an expert at all. I might be able to tap into their knowledge if I'm doing something different later on. So I'll go back to those contacts that I've made and say, can you help me with this or formulating that? And I need some ideas about how that works in this new country that might be of value for me. So it, it's good for the organizations. It's good for the beneficiaries as recipients of the aid that's being delivered, but also as us as individuals, it's a learning space as well. So I would strongly encourage this kind of multi-stakeholder, multi-sectoral kind of cross-sector fertilization of ideas um, from, from so many different perspectives. Yeah. Thank you, Addy, so much. It has been an absolute pleasure listening to you. And thank you for giving up half an hour of your time for us to... Okay, and take care, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye. Bye-bye. This was the Global Careers Calls podcast, brought to you by the University of London Career Service. You can find all episodes on your favourite podcast provider and all links and resources mentioned by our host are in the episode notes. This episode was hosted by Laura Brammer. It was edited by Bush Rajanu and presented by me, James Weaver, and produced by all of us. We'll have more episodes coming out in the following weeks with some motivational stories from our diverse graduate cohort. So please do subscribe. 
And to listen to previous episodes and find further resources made by our team, visit www.london.ac.uk forward slash careers. Thanks for listening and join us next time for a new global career call. Thank you.